Hello and welcome to the Soulful of It podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Raquel. Today, I'm joined by Emily Jackson, a badass business owner and yogi, who's going to share with us her story navigating this world with an invisible illness. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please remember to share it with your networks and go give us some five-star ratings on iTunes. All right, let's jump into it. Thank you so much, Emily Jackson, for joining me. Thank you so much, Carrie. I'm so happy to be here. We've got a whole bunch of different stuff that we're going to break down today. Let's start with kind of the building blocks of what we're going to talk about. So what is IC? Yeah, so IC stands for interstitial cystitis, and it is an incurable chronic illness. Inter- um, interstitial yeah. <laughs> interstitial cystitis. Interstitial cystitis. Cyst- Wait, no, I'm saying it slow. It's <laughs> tripping me up. Interstitial cystitis. 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 Okay. Interstitial yeah. cystitis. Yes. Okay. So yeah, so it's a it's a chronic illness that affects the bladder for the most part. It actually is targeted in several places, centered around the pelvic floor. So a lot of patients who have IC actually find that they also have something called pelvic floor dysfunction because they go so hand in hand. While it's not technically established as an autoimmune disorder, that's what I found is the easiest way to describe it because you are 30 times more likely to have either lupus or fibromyalgia, which are both autoimmune disorders. So I I really feel like it's only a matter of time before it's established in medical journals as an autoimmune disorder, just because it, it manifests as the body really attacking the pelvic floor and the the lining of the bladder wall. This is something that you have personally that you've been diagnosed with, and we're going to get into your story here shortly, but just to kind of fill in the blanks for folks who have never heard of this, what does it feel like if you're a person who has IC on the day-to-day, and what are you up against? What are the symptoms? What does it get mistaken for? And walk us through a flare-up. So that's kind of multiple questions in one answer, however you please. Okay, great. So on a day-to-day basis, and my symptoms may be different than somebody who's listening, there's a huge variability in the way that it manifests in different people's lives, but there's something called flare-ups, and that's the sort of short and sweet way to describe going into pain or feeling that inflammation within the walls of the bladder, and then that actually spurs off into something called Hunter's lesions as well, which only about 10% of IC patients actually have, but it's the rupturing of the bladder wall from a flare, but it all comes back to urgency, feeling like you need to pee all the time, pain in the pelvic floor, the best way I can describe it and this feels pretty graphic but it feels like shattered glass in your urethra so if you can if you can imagine what that feels like so it's horribly painful at its worst but most patients have a scale that it affects them on and I always say that it's really important to learn how to rate your pain on a one to ten scale for me it goes from one to five. And then if it hits five, it goes all the way to 10. And I usually end up having to go to the ER at that point. Can you go from a one pain level to a 10 pain level in a day or like in an hour? How quickly can that happen for somebody who has IC? I know it varies for people, but from your personal experience, how quickly can that happen? Like let's say uh, you just graduated from college. Let's say that you're in class and you think that you're having a flare up. 
how does that play out? Like you go from one to 10 and you're like, oh my God, I need to get out of here. I need to go to the hospital. Like, has that happened? Kind of break that down for us from your own experience. Yeah. The best example is probably the last time I went to the ER. The timeline was I was in a meeting and then I got up from sitting at the conference table and it became immediately clear that I was going into a flare. And within about 30 seconds from that moment, I was having trouble walking. I needed to relieve the pressure from my pelvis. And so I I had my partner at the time actually drive me home. And I remember like being in the front seat, like my legs are wide open trying to relax my pelvic floor. I've like unbuttoned my zipper. And there's actually a video that he took because he was trying to communicate like this is what the beginning of a flare looks like for people Mm. who are going into it. And, you know, that's the last thing that I ever wanted to do is like, let's pull out a phone so that I can try and use this as a communication point for people who are either on their way to being diagnosed or, or know somebody who's been diagnosed from the moment that that video is taken that point um, trying to get into the bath and kind of trying to unwind but in a lot of pain already it was about six hours later that I was in the ER and then it lasted for I was taking blood for about 18 hours wow so that's kind of one example of what the day-to-day can be like is there a less extreme example of like it flares up for a day or last a few days what else can this show up as in the scenarios where people really might be sitting across the table from you like I am right now and have no idea. Yeah. And that happens all the time. I've had this for nine years now. It was far less extreme when I was first diagnosed. You know, it it was bad because I was misdiagnosed for a long time, but it goes through waves. And a lot of the time I'm actually in pain. I have daily pain most of the time even if it's just a one out of ten it's something that I'm constantly monitoring I'm always thinking about where is the closest restroom to me I'm not going to necessarily bring it up to people that I'm in pain unless I feel like there's some reason that they would need to know that I might need to cut things short Uh, sometimes when I'm going into a meeting I will tell people that my autoimmune disorder feels like it's rumbling a little bit today and here's where I'm at I may have to dash really quickly but that I am hopeful we'll get through the full meeting and not to worry about me and I'll communicate if I need something but there are definitely less extreme versions but then you know there are a lot of people who are in their jobs and trying to get through it and I've been in an office job where I couldn't necessarily leave in the middle of the day and I was sweating there was one day where I was literally sweating in my office and an employee came to talk to me because I was a clinic manager at the time and he was trying to talk about some issue he was having and I remember just sweating profusely and feeling like I cannot register any of the things coming into my brain right now because I'm in so much pain that I really can't even walk or hold a conversation. Wow. And I know that there is more to that and we're going to get into that more too for people to understand when it's at its worst, like it can really wreak some havoc on your life and put you in a different space in your life where you're going to have to take a look at things and reevaluate what's possible. But before getting to that, I want to hear a little bit more for our listeners and myself as well to understand, you know, what is known about this 
an autoimmune disorder. And I know that you were saying before we even hopped on here that the research on this is pretty limited. The awareness around this is also quite limited. When was it being talked about more? And is there a cure? Yeah, so there's no cure currently. The symptoms have been recorded, I think, around 200 years ago, but we didn't actually receive the first established treatment plan and process for diagnosis in medical journals until 2009. So really, really recent. And right now, the things that we do know about it are really a mishmash of patient experiences. And interstitial cystitis is really a fancy term for inflammation of the bladder wall. So it can be a huge catch-all. And I think that that also creates some barriers to being diagnosed because doctors want something more specific. And there's, you know, there's, there's no single treatment plan that works. So it can be difficult to go from a diagnosis point to actually, you know, where do they go with that patient? And um, patients who have chronic illnesses are typically known for being more difficult because they know their body more than their doctors do. Mm. And they find that they're their biggest advocate. And, Absolutely. Um, I've had a, at one point I was seeing a surgeon every two weeks, a naturopath once a week, a pelvic floor specialist physical therapist once a week and getting acupuncture and massage as well for it. So one of my practitioners said, you know, you're going to be the one who cracks this before any of us do. Yep. So that's sort of the jumping off point for someone with IC. So like if y once you're diagnosed with something like this, they can't just go, okay, great. I just wrote you this prescription. I'm going to send you to the pharmacy. You can pick it up. That's going to make this livable for you. Exactly. Yeah. There's there's one pharmaceutical on the market that's actually formulated for patients with interstitial cystitis and it has a 38% success rate, which is wow. very poor. And you have to take it three times a day on an empty stomach. So then it creates a lot of lifestyle challenges around how you actually find time to eat. Mm -hmm. Um especially if you're trying to work or you have kids or both, it makes it really difficult. And a lot of people have claimed that it's really nothing more than a placebo pill, but there's a pharmaceutical company making money off it. 38%. <laughs> that's not a super no. reassuring number. When I hear that, I don't think, I, and especially with the limitations that come along with it and how early on they are into the research it's almost like, what else can you do? And I know right. that there are some other coping mechanisms that you've come up with and strategies that you've placed in your life that have helped you kind of navigate this. And I want to jump into that before we get to that, though, I think um, everybody would really love to hear more about your story and you getting diagnosed. How did you know that you had this perhaps getting misdiagnosed along the way? I know something that we had talked about before is that it's often mistaken for bladder cancer mm -hmm. or just a UTI, which is, you know, UTIs are pretty common, urinary tract infections. Are those things that they thought that you had and kind of take us, maybe we need to go back in time to like when you were younger, because I'm guessing that this isn't just something that popped up in 2009 when people were talking about it. No. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I had chronic UTIs starting from when I was a little kid, I think somewhere around uh, seven or eight years old was the first time I went to the ER for a UTI. And that's one thing that doctors sometimes think could be a, a possible cause for IC. Um, other causes can be stress or a traumatic event. Um, but for me, it, you know, I, I was having UTIs already as a small child. And then it was when I was around... 
2015 that I started going to the doctor with UTIs and the labs came back negative for bacteria, which means that there's no bacteria. So there's not actually an infection present. And you're basically, you know, you've already been prescribed antibiotics by the time they they find the the culture and sensitivities test comes back about five days after. And and you're already probably through your antibiotics at that point. So up until age 15, did you just kind of think that you had chronic urinary tract infections? Yes. Some of the time, though, it it was, you know, some of the time Mm -hmm. it was actually a UTI and it was a lot more sporadic until I reached around 15 or 16 and then there was about a two-year period where I was going for UTIs to the doctor every two weeks. And I was just put on a standing antibiotic order every single day to take an antibiotic because they were reluctant to diagnose me with something that is considered a, a geriatric illness. Mm. So the specialist that I ended up seeing after two years doesn't actually see patients under the age of 21. And I had to send in two years of chart notes to get her to approve me as a new patient. And I remember the first time that I saw her, she said she was really blown away because she was, she said, it's just, it's very, very rare. And what I've come to find since then is that it's not actually that rare. It's just that people don't have information. It's even new for some doctors to be diagnosing. The information that we do have hasn't permeated all of the medical communities who really need to receive it. Wow. So the lack of information around it itself creates a barrier for you to get the help that you needed. Exactly. So because they're not even seeing patients that were the age that you were when you were saying, wait, no, that it might be this thing though. It right. might be IC. I might not just be getting UTIs. I mean, look at the results. I don't have right. a UTI. But then right. throw in the fact that you'd get a UTI here and there and it complicates things. You're like, well, you had a UTI last time, but you don't have one now. So you're kind of up against a lot of different things. The system itself mm-hmm. isn't built to like, help you navigate this because of the lack of information it's not necessarily the fault of any there's no villain here right other than like knowledge is power exactly. and that's kind of that's the hero of this story of trying to figure out how do you navigate having this illness exactly yeah and I, I remember after two years you know I was so fed up and I was so tired of I mean I was missing so much school I was in high school and I remember the nurse kind of saying something as she was taking down, you know, the updates from my previous appointment two weeks before. And she was like, wow, you know, it, it actually sounds like something that is a chronic illness called interstitial cystitis. And I remember saying, God, I hope it is. I just, I need answers at this point. And she looked at me and she said, you don't want this. You better be careful what you wish for. And Mm. I remember just being so desperate at that point just to have a language for what I was going through and a reason. Because at that point, you know, I was getting in trouble with my teachers because I was going to the bathroom all the time. And they didn't, you know, they probably thought I was like doing drugs in the bathroom or something (laughs) like that. And explaining to my friends. And I I felt this sort of distance growing because I was in so much pain and I didn't want to say I was in pain in my bladder and my urethra all the time. And and also, you know, is new to dating and trying to explain it to my boyfriend. and Fresh out of puberty. Yeah. Like figuring out who you are. Yeah. And people are like, oh, UTIs, that's an STD, you know. And so there's, there's so much misinformation. UTI, that, right? STI. So people, yeah, just mm. I didn't even want to get into that realm. So I just kept it to myself. If you brought it up and you told people what was going on, you're expected to explain it because people don't understand. And at that right. point in your life, how could you explain it? The doctors can't even explain right. what's going on, what you have. So 
yeah, not having a language for it really creates another barrier. Yeah. Yeah. More isolation and, and shame. Yep. So getting more into your story, when you, when did you get diagnosed? Like how old were you at that point when she was like, I think it might be, I see. And then you were like, yes, that's what it is. Like at what point in your life were you? I was 17 and I remember I went out and saw this specialist out in Gresham, like an hour from my house. And that was the specialist who had, you know, finally accepted me on as a new patient. Cause that was the other barriers. You know, my doctor was like, how do we get you in to see somebody? Because at that point, his, his, the information he had received was, it was really only people like 65 and older who had this. Wow. So I went out and then it was like the second appointment that she ran a test where they put two solutions into your bladder via catheter and they don't tell you which one is just a saline solution and which one is this um, triggering solution. I can't remember the actual ingredients that are in it. I, I remember the first one and then you know they ask you how to, how to rate your pain uh, or to rate your pain as the different solutions are going in. And the first one was the saline and I was like, oh, you know, it was like a three or two because I was kind of feeling the That's kind of where you always are. Right, yeah. exactly. Oh, God, and catheters, like, no ugh, fun. No. Had one once, not. not <laughs> Never again. Would, like, <laughs> 10 out of 10 wouldn't do again, like, if I had a choice. Well, yeah. and that's one of the recommended <laughs> treatment plans for IC patients is self-cathetering twice a day. Oh, you want to talk about oh being my gosh. 21 years old and self-cathetering cathetering twice a day. Sexy. That is some... Discipline to even be able to do that. Yeah. I don't, wow. You know, so then she put the second solution in and we didn't even get all of it in because it was excruciating. And that's actually considered a really outdated now way of diagnosing a patient because it basically sends the patient into a flare and she had to immediately fill my bladder with an antibiotic anti-inflammatory solution. And you get more antibiotics out of this. Great. Right. Yeah, I don't I don't know exactly what it was that she put in there, but there is a solution that when you're in a flare, you can go and, and have a catheter administered and, and they put this solution in. But The one time when a catheter is actually a good option. I know, I'm like, like, give me the catheter. It, give it to me. <laughs> like, I don't want to do it, but right now I do want to yeah, do it. Yeah, the and number of times I've been like, who, who in. in Portland can give me a catheter right now? <laughs> <laughs> we need to find you a sadist, man. Yeah, right. I think there's probably a pretty big sadist community here. This well, It's a weird place, yeah. but... That's pretty wild. And speaking of like being diagnosed, living with these symptoms, walk us through telling friends and family and how did that go down? And um, I know we had talked about before jumping on here that not everybody knew right away and there was a lot of you withholding. So maybe we can go into like why you withheld and how you kind of came about telling folks what was really going on with you yeah and maybe the ages because I don't know how much time went on beyond like you kind of knew at this point you're empowered to know what it is maybe you don't know everything because nobody does Mm -hmm. versus like where you're at in your life when you start spilling the beans yeah when I first was diagnosed it was like great now I know what's actually going on and I know from communicating with people in the online community now that moment a lot of people have that moment where they're they hear that they've been diagnosed with a chronic illness and it's really impactful for them Mm. for me I was working full-time I was in high school I was just trying to get good grades and 
be a normal teen. And so it didn't register for me how this would impact my life and what it meant. Um, I was already epileptic and had you know chronic migraines. And so it was just like, all right, let's just like add another one to the list mm. and really didn't realize how much it would change my life. And so I really didn't tell people because I really didn't want this to be this thing where, you know, especially because it's an invisible illness and at 17, 16, how do you communicate with people about something that's going on? And I really felt like I had set the bar high enough for myself that I didn't want people to think that I was somehow backing out or making excuses. It was very like tough side of my personality that doesn't back down and doesn't let myself, you know, make excuses and, and is like full force, go for it. And I think probably one of the more beautiful things that this illness has taught me is be more gentle with myself. But I really didn't want that to become part of my story and what people thought when they thought about me. And so I didn't even really talk to my family about it. A lot of people have loved ones in those appointments when they are being diagnosed or having the initial appointments, you know, with the catheter. They've got their mom in the room or something like that. And I, I, did just, I totally kept it to myself. And I went to all those by myself and just didn't want to talk about it. And then we've talked a little bit about how, for me, the symptoms were a little bit more mild for the first four or five years. And so it was more like every, you know, I'd, I'd flare for a couple days and then I'd have like three weeks where I had zero symptoms and I could do anything and it wouldn't really make a difference. And I mean, you've always been very physical. Like, were you running then? Because I know that you do run now. So yeah. people really wouldn't know. No, I, I ran a half marathon during that time. And running is like a big, uh, I don't want to say no-no because I really, everybody's different, but you have to be really careful around mm. physical activity. But you had all that energy and you were right. doing that. So on the outside looking in, People didn't necessarily have red flags right. to like know to check in with you or totally. even have any idea, Yeah, which almost makes it harder to tell people because yeah. if you tell them, then they're like, yeah, it was a real thing two weeks ago when you had a flare up, which just happened to be when I asked you to go run errands with me. Right. <laughs> exactly. Whatever. Yeah. How convenient. Yeah. Like people make these stories up. Right. right. So there's a lot of fear in being encouraged to be vulnerable is still such a new thing. It's yeah. 2019 and like that's new. Yeah. Still. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I did end up telling my family when actually I woke up one morning and found that I I had lost a lot of fine motor control. I woke up and the pain was so strong that the walls of my bladder had really removed a lot of that protective lining. And so it just left the nerves exposed. There's no part of your body that doesn't feel it. And my hands shook. There were a few times where I actually... I had to have my boyfriend at the time dress me because I couldn't button the buttons on my clothing. So I went into that flare and I actually didn't come out until the following July. So it was December of 2015 when I went in and then it was July of 2016 when I came out of that. And before that, during those months, we tried every pharmaceutical on the market. The pharmaceuticals, there's only one as we've, we've talked yeah. about, but there's a whole list of them that have worked for some patients but they're like oh it's a sleeping pill that you have to take in this crazy dose and it'll relieve your pain but you can't drive your car or it's or very work. experimental it's super experimental so it's messing with so many things to like try and fix one thing that it might kind of help it's not going to cure it 
and totally fucks with your quality of life. I know that there was a chapter in there where you were essentially disabled. Mm-hmm. And was that, what, six months? Was it longer than that? Yeah, that was about eight months. It was different every single day. And there were some days where I couldn't do the smallest things like zip a zipper and I couldn't like clench or like even hold water up just to drink a glass of water because my hands shook so hard. But then there were other days where I know that I I did have moments where I was I was at like a four out of ten. And that was like a good day. And that was a great day. Wow. And but I had I had I mean, when you're in that level of pain for that long, and at that point, you know, my doctor was, my the surgeon I was seeing was really not optimistic. He was recommending that I start applying for disability because he didn't think I was going to be able to work much longer. He was surprised I was still working. Wow. And so to go from somebody who is pursuing a career while going to night school, paying, you know, through and cash and really getting after it, it all really crashed when then I realized I might not have a career. I might be in a wheelchair the rest of my life. I may never be able to have children. You know, how can you support a child if you can't even dress yourself? And those thoughts were going through my head, but I actually found medical marijuana at that time. And I was, I mean, at that point I was paying around $350 a month for natural supplements. I was, I'd spent so much money on remedies and pharmaceuticals and tests and trying going to, to see the doctor all the time, all the, all the co-pays. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Just that alone, not even talking about the, just all that adding exactly. up. It's a lot. Exactly. So when you found medical marijuana, what did that look like cost wise? You know, it's different. It's expensive still. I I think that part of my mission is to find a way to make that more accessible to people and to reduce the cost. I don't have like the medical marijuana card that does grant you access into some of those higher mm. tier like medical Tax prescriptions. Free. Right, exactly. Here in like Portland where it's legal. Right. Awesome. And the the medical marijuana that I receive is through organic farmer. It's a little bit more like a niche and it's awesome though. So yeah, it's it's really great. And it is isn't it specifically C B D? Yes, it's it is it's CBD. So I take three strains. So there's a, a twenty to one ratio of CBD to THC, and that's non psycho non psychoactive. So I can take that anytime, and and then at night uh, there's a two to one CBD to THC, and then there's a full THC that's an indica that helps me sleep. And that THC, that little bit of THC, is really important because it's a little bit like the conductor that connects the mm. CBD to those pain receptors and makes it uh, makes it work. So THC helps increase blood flow and blood circulation. I've taken full CBDs before, thinking like, oh, maybe you know this is what was at the dispensary down the street from my house and I'm in a really bad flare so let's just try it and it's been shocking how I just felt nothing so um, people who have tried CBDs and said it didn't work at all I always really encourage them to find a strain that's a 20 to 1 ratio of CBD to THC that's such good information that's not again also not super easily accessible it's not being talked about there's not a lot of articles being written about the positive effects of CBD period right but also the positive effects of cbd with a 20 to 1 ratio with thc for folks who are experiencing yeah i see yeah and keep in mind like i i was the one who 
before I had this and relied on medical marijuana, I was like, oh, you know, these guys just want to get marijuana legalized because they want to get stoned. And I still voted in favor of it because I was like, I'm not going to keep you from living your life, but I know what you're doing. And I was also, I, you know, I was sober for like three years because I just, I knew it was a trigger for IC and also... I just am not somebody who's into substances. Yep. I like being in control of my body. So I'm like the last person you'd ever expect to take CBDs or medical marijuana on a daily but basis. But they work for and you. amazing. Yeah. I, and they've changed. I mean, I'm off pharmaceuticals for epilepsy as well. So I, I'm like, everybody legalize. Make That's this so accessible. Empowering. Yeah. I won't. I'll never forget. I mean, I went from eight months of flaring and took my first dose. I will never forget that day getting my entire life back within the span of two hours so where you're at in your life right now you're a fresh graduate yep. you're running a badass business at swift dd find her on instagram find her on facebook <laughs> uh, digital design super rad she can build your website but i know that you're also using things like yoga which to me is still that's a very physical thing mm-hmm. um integrating that into your life how are you coping now that you have because obviously the cbd is a big thing that's a huge help and that's yeah. something that i'm glad to hear that you're an advocate for and that we're sharing this information with folks who maybe you're listening to this and you're not in a legal state where right. that's accessible right come on down come yeah. to portland yeah. oregon <laughs> we're here we're waiting for you or washington or yeah, california or washington. it's right? spreading california. colorado man there's yeah. places the West Coast is the best. The West Coast is the best coast. Yeah. So like, come get it. But yeah, how are you like using yoga? Is there anything else that you're doing? Are you? I know you're into like herbal stuff too. So are you? Is there like a tea that you've been drinking? Or yeah, there's what's like your go-to marshmallow root tea? Uh, and you know those things to me are sort of like best practices. Totally. The, in, in terms of tea, I don't think I've ever been like, oh, that tea really helped me, kept me from going into a flare altogether. You have to be CBT. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'll oh. see myself out. Oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a minute. Uh, yeah, so I I do yoga. I strive for about five days a week. Wait, strive for about five days a week? Oh, you're doing it five days a week? I'm trying. Snap, that's I, pretty intense. I was until an awesome. uh, until my spring term of college. And, and then you got like the final. Slammed. Yeah, I was just like, ah. Oh. But you're um, back in the swing of it now. Yeah, exactly. And really prioritizing it because uh, when I did that, you know, I I was able to remove the $350 in natural supplements that I was taking and the amount that I use of my CBDs really went down. So the cost of that, I buy it in like six month bulk packages and I find that I go back for reorders far less when I'm really dedicated to my yoga practice. And you've shared some of these techniques that you have and strategies with folks who are in the IC community, which it sounds like is thriving Um, in the Instagram space, at least compared to other places that folks might be looking for information. So um, if somebody's listening to this and they want to learn more about IC or like the ways that you have kind of empowered yourself through this beyond what we're talking about now, where could they go to access that information and find you? Yeah. So I, I do run a, an Instagram page. Uh, it's at interstitial cystitis partner. My, my sort of brand that I built around it, that was really a coping mechanism when I was in that 
uh, that eight month flare. It's called mint and honey because that's my favorite tea that I drink when I'm in a flare and can't drink coffee. So I built it around that and I have some like special memories around making mint and honey tea with my mom. And so that's where that came from. But uh, it is, it's amazing. Every time I post on, on Instagram, I get DMs from people who just connect. Who and they're just, all over the world. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. There's an amazing yoga video online for pelvic floor dysfunction. And I see that uh, is about 30 minutes and I posted about it and I got an, a DM from a man in India who said both him and his girlfriend have IC but don't have access to medical care. And I sent him the link to the video and he was like, I, it's $20. I can't afford it. And so I re-recorded it myself and sent it off to him. And that was sort of the beginning. That was about around two years ago where I realized how many people are really hungry for this information, how many people just want somebody to talk to who don't want to feel isolated. I hear a lot from people that they've lost a lot of their friends. I know I've certainly lost um parts of my circle because when you're you know in your 20s and you suddenly can't drink or you're not able to make it to plans and it, it just is a lot it, it can be more demanding on relationships and the things you know when I am sad about things like that I, I remind myself that I see has not taken anything from me that was not already not meant for me in my life it didn't take anything from you that, that wasn't, wasn't already right. not meant for you yes I'm like, snap, snap, snap. That's some poetry <laughs> right there. It, is it? <laughs> it feels it's a little clunky, but yeah. But it's empowering. It just is. Yeah, that, it is even true. Yeah. Applying it outside of the perspective that you have with your illness. Anybody who's had an illness. Yeah. Um, Even the folks like me who've only had like uh, a cold or bronchitis, which to me at the time was like, oh my God, I'm dying. <laughs> um, But also only lasted yeah. like two weeks, three weeks. So for that to go on for eight months is a whole different ball game and then really forever for you to keep fighting it but also it sounds like you've come to a place where you're like working with it you're yeah. not against it so I think fighting it probably isn't even the right way to put it right exactly it's it's something that I think about and I talk to people about when they've newly been diagnosed and they reach out um is that you really come to terms with the fact that the first relationship you have in your life is you with your body mm. and um, and how to build that relationship um, because I see may it may be that their symptoms stay consistent through their entire life. Um, it may be that it fluxes and either goes all the way up or all the way down or they have moments where they're in remission. Um, but but no matter what approaching, the symptoms without judgment. Uh, I know that when I was partially disabled, I felt like my my body really became my surgeon's playground. Mm. And um, I mean, the number of things that were like stuck in me and, and the medications that I took and the way that my body changed during that time because of all the side effects, it made me really angry with my body, especially going in with hope that, you know, we we always have hope without realizing it when we're prescribed a, a medication um, for Absolutely. an ailment. And then when nothing works time and time again, you start to, it's easy to get really angry with your body and start blaming it for not responding or start blaming it for changing in ways that you don't want it to or that feeling, you can't control. Right. And feeling out of control. And I think that one of the greatest gifts is is just 
feeling that connection to my body and instead feeling like feeling grateful you know I hope I never lose that that gratitude of you know remembering what it was like to walk freely for the first time again in in eight months and feel kind of like everything come back but also recognizing that the things that I wanted to come back are not the things that really matter in life Mm. and that it is possible to to you know if I had never been if I'd never come out of of that state of being um, disabled that there's absolutely a way to live a full fulfilling life with that a soul-filling life soul-filling life yeah yeah (laughs) yeah totally good so I know we're coming towards the end and wrapping up here, but there's one thing I did want to mention before I've got some final questions for you. Your digital design business Mm -hmm. at SwiftDD, that you are doing some uh, contributions towards the cause that that has been such a big part of your life. So what does that look like for you? Yeah, so that was a big... That was a big motivator for me to start a business. Uh, one of the classes I took after I came out of the big flare was on social innovation and innovation for change. And we had to create a business plan for a nonprofit. And I remember I literally emailed my professor and was like, I have nothing to contribute. I am a hardcore businesswoman. I intend to make a lot of money. You know, this was like six months <laughs> yeah. after I came out of my flare and was like, honestly, at that point, what I wanted to do was forget that it had happened. And totally. I wanted to go back to like, finding a way to go into remission it's like I threw all the lessons I learned during that year and just like threw it out the window because I wanted to be away from it and I needed some time away from it and then the universe was like nope yeah nope here's your challenge you're gonna have this assignment exactly and my professor emailed me back and she said I think that you have a lot more to contribute than you think and she didn't know anything about what I had been through and I it hit me and I was like oh my god here it is here it is yep Mm. this is this is the work and um, so that was that was part of me, you know, bringing back mint and honey and like finding ways to reach out to my community. Those were the first months that I built a free yoga video for people with pelvic floor dysfunction and interstitial cystitis and started distributing that from there. Then it's always sort of been the lens through which that I that I work. And so starting a business for me was about when I was able to return to work because I, I did leave my job when I was in the big flare um unfortunately I was heartbreaking but I just I mean I I was missing so much work it's what you had to do yeah you weren't in school at the time either for a period exactly so when I was going into it I was like well I I would need a job that is flexible and allows me to work from home or allows me to take time off and I was like where am I gonna find that you know and it just seemed easier to me to to start a business and use the skills that I had created and also find a way to build um, build a business model that contributed to the triple bottom line, which is when a business not only serves for profit, but also serves the environment. People, profit, and the planet. Yes. So the idea is that it's creating shared value. The value that you provide through the work that you do also finds a way to create value for altruistic purposes. So 5% of all of my profits from my business go into research for and finding a cure for interstitial cystitis. Is there a nonprofit that you, that that goes to or a way that folks could donate if that they wanted to help out? Yeah. Hearing this right now. Yeah. I see help.org. 
ichelp.org. Go there. You can donate. This is, it's an autoimmune illness. It's something that there's so little research and knowledge on it and knowledge is power. And the more that we know, the more that we can share about this, share this podcast out, the more that folks can have access to, to the knowledge, but also to being seen. Yeah. They're not alone in this, you know, that you don't have to be a certain age to be going through this. Right. A hundred percent. A couple questions I wanted to ask you is for anybody who's listening to this right now who has IC or thinks they might have IC or something very similar. Any advice that you have for those folks? The first thing I would say is just start by being honest about what's going on. Find the people who you feel comfortable with, whether that's family or your partner or your siblings or friends, close friends. You know, you don't you don't need to share it with people you feel uncomfortable sharing it with, but start by telling somebody and being honest with yourself and honest with others. And then I'd also say find a therapist. <laughs> like I, I'm my therapist. I I see um, she specializes in patients with chronic illnesses, and mm-hmm. she has been such an incredible resource in my life as I've worked through kind of the different uh, stages of this, but she has completely changed the way that I approach this illness. And then I also would say find a community. And for me, that has really been uh, my yoga practice because I can be active. I can connect with other people on a, with, with, you know, a common ground that's not around my illness, but then also connecting with people online. There's a huge community of people on Instagram and Reddit. And again, they can find you mm-hmm. in your account, Milk and Honey, which is at interstitial cystitis partner. partner. Yes. Um, and spelling on that for folks who, like me, can't spell interstitial is I-N-T-E-R-S-T-I-T-I-A-L. I almost just read, <laughs> I almost just read my pronunciation, which is like all messed up. That's so funny. Interstitial. Um, guys, get with it. Get jiggy with it and follow her account. Even if you don't have it, just because what you're doing is so empowering and so rad for anybody going through any difficulty in their life, whether that's an illness or just a transition. Um, life's hard, man. Yeah. And I connect with a lot of people who have like fibromyalgia and endometriosis and Because they lupus. often have IC, right? Yes. And even if they don't have IC, you know, it's um, they're called spoonies, which is a new term for Ooh, me. But uh, that's that. based on spoon theory, which you can look up. It's a great way for patients to advocate for their pain levels. Homework. Go look up spoon ther- yeah. theory. Yeah. Spoon theory. I almost just said spoon therapy, <laughs> which sounds really interesting. I mean, and I hope there's cereal involved, like sure. spoon and some cereal in my mouth. Yeah. Okay. So other question that I had for you, any advice that you have for folks who aren't personally going through the experience to kind of help them understand and have more empathy? Approach, first and foremost, approach it with genuine curiosity. Mm. Recognize that this person is, has probably been struggling with this for a long time before they were diagnosed and they're probably really sensitive. I don't, I didn't really go into this, but it's really difficult to actually nail down a procedure Mm. that is like black and white. This is what you have. And so patients often will feel they've had to defend themselves and their symptoms for a long time before they've actually been diagnosed. So being very gentle and realizing that they may need an advocate more mm. than they're telling you or more than they even know themselves. Offer to go to doctor's appointments with them. Reassure them that this is something that you'll get through together. 
and that they have an advocate in you and also follow Instagram accounts and follow, you know, what's going on in the IC community almost as if you have IC because the more you can understand through other people's experiences, the more you can understand what the person in your life with IC is going through. I'm in the process of writing a book that is for partners of people with IC. It'll be a great resource as well for family members and friends who just want to understand more about what's going on. That, that That's the biggest thing is just recognize how scary this can be for that person and the changes that they're going through. That's all such great advice. And I think that that's advice that really transcends not just IC. I think that transcends yeah. any anybody in your life um, developing that compassion. A lot of the time it's hard to develop compassion without education. Mm -hmm. And there is more information now than there was in 2009. So if you can get your hands on that information, I agree with Emily. I'd empower you to go do that. And even if you don't know anybody who has this or anything like it, it never hurts to understand a piece of the people around you because the reality is that you might think you don't know anybody who has this But since it is an invisible illness, like I'm looking at Emily right now and I can tell you by looking at her, I would never, ever know, especially when she's telling me she's training for a marathon. (laughs) And in my head, I'm like, wow, this woman's running a business. (laughs) She has graduated from college with a double major, magna cum laude. She's running this marathon. She's writing a book. I hear all of that thing, all of those things. And I don't, my brain doesn't tell me she also might be battling an invisible illness so it's really humbling and grounding for me and I hope folks who are listening to this right now to be aware yeah and to to be open and receptive and also I think as talkative as I am to shut the fuck up (laughs) and sometimes you just need to listen and you just need to like ask somebody how can I help you and and sometimes asking how can I help isn't enough hey are you having a flare this week hey, do you need me to stop by with dinner? Or if you're a boss or a leader to somebody and you know that they have something going on, or even if you don't, hey, how are you doing? Genuinely ask. <laughs> yeah, that's huge. We live in a culture of how are you good? I'm fine. But yeah. that doesn't have to be the world that we live in. It can be, you know, what was the best thing about your week? Yeah. And, you know, what was the worst thing about your week? What's your high? What's your low? Where are you at? Totally. Where yeah. can I meet you in the middle? Hey, do you need to like work from home today? <laughs> like, let's get some flexibility in here. And for those of you who are in a position where maybe, you know, working from home or maybe you're not with a leader who's compassionate or whether it's at school or at work or even your parents at home or wherever you are, you can create that for yourself. Yeah. I mean, Emily's a great example of this. She didn't have a job that was flexible. So what did she do? She created one at Swift DD. <laughs> you're so awesome. <laughs> I'm such a good plugger. Um, for real though, go follow her on uh, multiple channels. And a book coming soon. You never know. One last question. What would you say your soul is full of? Gratitude. I love that. And to build on that question, what is one thing, two things, three things, however many things you want to say that is soul filling for you that you practice in your life? Living every day like I just got my legs back. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like. Yeah. Living every day like we don't know what's going to happen the image I I used to have was just waking up in the morning and being able to have a cup of coffee and make myself a piece of toast. And that seems so simple, but that's the activity that when I'm feeling low and I'm feeling like I'm kind of beat down in just some of the normal stuff that life throws at us, I'll make myself a cup of coffee and go sit by the window and just sit 
because that was, you know, that's what I wanted. And yeah. that's what I dreamed about doing for a long time. And just waking up without pain. I, I'm so grateful for that anchor. Taking pleasure in the simple things. Exactly. And the things that we all take for granted. Totally. So easily. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for joining me. This is amazing. I learned so much. I hope everybody that's listening to us learned so much. Thank you guys for listening, for joining us. Yeah, so Carrie, awesome. I can't thank you enough. This is such an incredible opportunity to get to like share with people and, you know, hopefully reach somebody who has been struggling with symptoms that they didn't know what was going on or maybe felt too embarrassed to reach out. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. And I did just want to acknowledge you, Emily, for your like fierce, cor- courageous vulnerability in sharing something that I know you know, as we have all heard throughout this podcast, wasn't something that right out of the gate, you were like, hey, this is what's going on with me. And like, IP blood, IP blood, (laughs) (laughs) hashtag IP blood. Like, that's not something that a lot of people, I think, feel empowered to do. And for you to to show up in this conversation um, and for this audience as your authentic self and share that piece of your soul with us is exactly what this podcast is all about. And I'm just so grateful to have you here and I can't wait for our next podcast. So keep listening, guys. Keep following Soulful of It podcast. We will have more of this coming for you soon. And definitely Emily is going to be back probably many, many times. And when she's got a book out or writes articles, whatever's going on with her, I will make sure you guys know and uh, have all the links to be able to follow her because she is such a badass. Um, And you know what? We all are. And it's witnessing people who are crushing it despite the the challenges life is throwing at them that gets the rest of us going, oh, okay, I can do this. Well, and how many people are struggling through those things and kicking ass without exactly. anyone realizing. There's so many people and extend grace to everyone That's around right. you. And and I see you, Emily, and I, I see you guys that are – Okay, I, I hear you guys. I don't know. You guys hear me. Um, <laughs> or you hear us. But I-